Matthew chapter 18 is one of those chapters I've wanted to teach for now 20 years. Uh, I've never taught this on Sunday morning, this chapter, and it's so important. The challenge with this chapter is that there's so much in it that it's hard to contain it all. Uh, and, you know, it's like it's, it all flows together. Each part builds upon the next. And so um, we, you know, the big question each week is what do you leave in and what do you leave out? And so last week we began and... Um, we mentioned, as we jump right in, verse 1, uh, we mentioned it says, at that time the disciples came to Jesus and said, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And we mentioned last week that the other gospel writers chime in and they give a little bit more information as to what's really going on. So there on your outline, when Luke told the story, he says, an argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest spiritually. Uh, you can see that. The, um, then Mark tells the story, and Mark adds another detail. Mark says this. Uh, they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, and I do want you to underline he was in the house, he asked them, what are you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. And so last week when we began our teaching, we talked about when they're asking about what, who the greatest is, uh, what that meant. And if you didn't, if you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to go back and, and look at that and see what they were actually talking about. But also what we find in this and what's going to be important for our study today is that Jesus has this conversation with them in a house. This conversation has been going on for several days. They've come back into the area of what we would call Galilee, into the town of Capernaum. They find themselves in a house and uh, that's when Jesus says, what is it that you've been talking about? Now the reason that's going to be important, and I want you to write this down, this sets up everything for the, the whole teaching. This is going to be a private a private meeting about relationships within the church, within the church. And so that's why we've called this today All in the Family. So what we're going to talk about today uh, deals with church relationships, uh, in, in-house kind of relationships. Uh, some of this you can't really apply to your coworkers at work who aren't believers, but uh, this is all in-house church stuff. And again, very important as we travel through. Last week we mentioned that it all began in verse 3. It says, truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so we talked about how that family relationship begins at conversion. We talked about what that was. And then beyond conversion, the rest of the chapter deals with once somebody is converted, dealing with other believers within the context of the church. So we're also going to find in this chapter that Jesus uses a great deal of what's called hyperbole. Hyperbole is whenever you exaggerate something to make a point. In Jewish communication then and now, they would use great exaggeration in order to make a specific point. It's, it's something that we, we're used to doing, but sometimes we're uncomfortable when we see it in the Bible. For instance, you parents, you say to your child, you say, I've told you a million times to clean your room. And uh, Am I the only one who's ever said something like that? And so, but the truth is, you haven't really told them a million times, but you're using some hyperbole. Uh, you're exaggerating in order to make a point. Do they get the point? No, but still, it's, it's, it's still that we do that. So, here, what we're going to find is that Jesus is using some hyperbole, exaggeration, in order to make a specific point. So, you want to be aware of that as we travel through, because there's a lot of that in this, this passage. 
And one of the things that we mentioned last week is that in this passage, using some hyperbole, Jesus will refer to us, that's followers of his, his disciples, he will refer to us as little children. And you want to write that down. Again, using some hyperbole, I put the verses there. It actually began in verse 3, but 4, 5, 6, and 10, he refers to those who would be followers of his as little children. Not specifically speaking of little children, but his, his children. And in verse 3, when he first uses the word, I put that there on your outline, uh, a little child, uh, the word, Greek word there, and it just means a childling and infant. Now, uh, this is very important as we, we get into this because Jesus refers to us as his followers as little children. Now, we're not little children, but when he views us, we're like little children to him. And that's very important because one of the mistakes that you and I make in our relationship with the Lord is that we think that we're in this adult to adult relationship. We think I'm an adult, he's an adult, we relate to each other as adults. And here Jesus is going to, using a little bit of hyperbole, drive home the point that no, that's not really how this relationship is. Uh, In his world, we are his little children. Now that's important, especially when you think of how we relate to God. It's not an adult-adult relationship. Those of us who have little kids, you know, three years old, five-year-olds, we, we love them, we enjoy them, uh, sometimes they exasperate us, sometimes they completely frustrate us, but at the end of the day we realize we're the adult and they're the children. And, and we get that. And, uh, and yet if we think that we're in an adult-adult relationship, when we exasperate him, uh, many times we become insecure in the relationship because we don't realize he doesn't view, view us uh, as as an adult-adult relationship. Let me give you, a, uh, for instance, and some of you parents will relate to this. In our family, we have Avery Joy, and Avery Joy is now 11 years old. And when Avery Joy was five years old, Avery learned how to spell her name. It was an exciting time. And so one day, she's out in the front yard, and she wants to spell her name. We had this beautiful black suburban in our front yard, and Avery found a rock and she carved Avery into the side of the car. And she spelled it backwards. It went the wrong way. So for me, I'm like, you, you wrote this in the car and you spelled it backwards. You're homeschooled, so they already think you're a social misfit. Now they're going to think, <laughs> I can't even teach you which way to write your name. You know, so I didn't handle it quite like that, but, but you get the point. I was frustrated. I was angry that she would do that, but she's five. She's five. I'm the adult, she's the child. We're not in an adult-adult relationship. So I overlook and we move beyond things. So when you and I make great messes in our life, uh, he looks at us as we would look at our five-year-old and three-year-old. And so we need to rest in that relationship. It's not an adult-adult relationship. Certainly wants us to grow up, but at the very best, we are the three-year-old kind of quasi-potty trained in the relationship. So in this chapter, it's all about how we 
as believers, his little ones, how we treat the little ones, other believers that are also part of this church body. So in verse 6, you'll recall from last week, he says, whoever causes one of these little ones, which is how he refers to us, who believe in me to stumble, some of your Bibles would say sin, it would be better for him to have a great heavy millstone tied around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. And we talked about that last week, how Jesus is using an exaggeration to make a point. I wanted to just very quickly, uh, there in your outline, I put the verse from God's Word translation. It says, these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for the person who causes one of them to lose faith. And then he goes on. He's, and, and so that word can be translated a number of different ways. The word there in the original language is the word scandalizo from where we get the word scandalized. So the idea is he's saying, I take this very seriously. You be very careful how you interact with one of my little ones, not children, but his followers. Uh, You don't want to scandalize one of them. You don't want to hurt their faith. It's something that I take very serious. So he's He uses some hyperbole there in order to drive home the point. More hyperbole, verse 8, we talked about this, if your hand or foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. And uh, we talked about that last week. Jesus is exaggerating a point to make a point. And uh, before you cut off parts of your body that cause you to stumble, remember last week we talked about how Jesus teaches that what causes us to stumble is really what's going on in our heart. Uh, We've stumbled long before it gets to our body parts. And so it's really eradicating those things that are on the inside. But he uses some very strong language to make a point. Uh, So please don't go cut parts off. Verse 10, uh, we also saw, and this is how far we got last week, he says, see to it that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. And we talked about what those angels mean. But that word despise, at least in my translation, uh, the Greek word is there, it, it, it means to despise, to disdain, to think little or nothing of. And so last week we highlighted the different ways that it's translated in your body, uh, in, in, in your Bible. It says, don't despise, look down on, think little of, his little, or that his little ones are worth nothing, for they have angels. And uh, we talked about what that means, that they have angels. And if you weren't here, you'll want to get that. But the idea is that we're not to, for, for other believers, we don't despise them, we don't look down on them, uh, we don't think nothing of them. And so that's important for our study. We'll come back to that. Verse 11, it says, for the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. Now some of your Bibles don't have a verse 11, and uh, we talked about that a few weeks ago as to why. So as we get into the rest of this, and we've looked at a couple of things that are going to be important for our study today, remember that all of these relationships that we're going to talk about today, this is a private meeting that Jesus is having. Everything that he's talking about is going to deal with how we work things out within the context of the church. So now Jesus is going to say it another way, and um, he's going to use a parable. Now this parable that Jesus is going to use is a parable that you've heard another way. Uh, He uses a very similar parable in another gospel at another time uh, to make another point. And uh, in that gospel at that time, using a very similar similar parable, uh, in that gospel at that time, he's going to use this parable. And I want you to write this down. Uh, It'll be a similar parable 
which is about the unsaved who are lost. And uh, I just want to read a line of that just to let you know where this goes. In that parable, in another gospel, at another time, in another context, he says, a man has a hundred sheep and has lost. I want you to underline lost one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 and go after the one which is lost? And if you go through that parable, it's going to be lost, lost, lost. This parable is very different. Uh, It's going to use some of the same wording, but we're not talking about somebody who is lost who needs to come to Jesus. Uh, In this context, because we're dealing with relationships within the church, there on your outline, this parable is going to be about sheep or his little ones who strayed. And you want to write that down. I'm going to pick it up in verse 12, and I want, I want to highlight a couple of words as we travel through. He says, what do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep, and one of them has gone astray, some of your Bibles will say wander, he's not lost, he's gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go and search for the one that is straying, or wandering, however your Bible says it, if it turns out that he finds it, because this is talking about within the body of Christ, uh, the church, one is going to be wandering. If it turns out that he finds it, what we're going to find out is not everybody wants to be found. And that'll be important. If it turns out that he finds it, I truly say, truly I say to you, he rejoices, it, rejoices over it more than the 99 which have not gone astray or wandered, however your Bible says it. So it's not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish, not one of these little ones perish. So this parable is going to be about sheep or his little ones who have strayed. And what we find here is in the context of this passage, this chapter, they've strayed there in your outline because they've been scandalized, and we saw that in verse 6, or they've been despised, and we saw that in verse 10, or because of their own sin. Write that down, and we're going to talk about their own sin in just a moment. In this context that he's writing, because we're talking about relationships within the church, when it says it's not his will that any of these little ones perish, he's not talking about somebody straying from the congregation and losing their salvation. He's talking here uh, about how it's important for sheep to be connected to the flock, because sheep don't do well when they get away from the flock. Which is why you hunters out there, when you've been hunting, you've heard me say it before, you have never come across a pack of wild sheep. They don't exist. Because once they wander from the flock, they get eaten up. So here, when he talks about perishing, he's not talking about perishing in the next life. Here, they've wandered off, and uh, we've all seen in our lives somebody who will wander off from the flock of God, the body of Christ, however you want to say that, the church, they leave fellowship only to find that their lives are ultimately destroyed because of some decisions, things that they get into. So they've wandered off. So the goal is to go and if possible to bring them back because of the things that happen in their life. Not that God is inflicting those things on them, it's just you see people go out and make terrible decisions that can ruin their lives. So we've all seen that. So some will stray because they've been scandalized. Some will stray from the flock because they've been despised. Something's happened. 
And uh, some will stray because of their own sin. So we've talked about those who stray because they've been scandalized, those who stray because they've been despised. Now we'll talk about those who stray because of their own sin. We're going to pick it up in verse 15. He says, if your brother sins, and you want to underline that brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Here, as we talk about this, the one who strays is referred to as a brother who sinned. And you want to write that down. He's a brother, but he sinned. He sinned. The idea here is that uh, you, you know that they've done something. They've sinned against you. Maybe they've sinned against some other people. So the goal is to go to them privately and see if you can bring them back. You go to them privately because you don't want to spread that around so that you don't destroy their reputation and uh, you know, to, to bring them back. Now personally for me, when somebody offends me, hurts me, I prefer to go tell Pastor TJ about it and say, here's what they did to me. And he says something like, well, did you go talk to them? And I go, no, I don't want to talk to them. I want to tell you. Am I the only one who's ever felt that way? So he sends me back. So it's one of those things. You know, so we go to that person privately in order to restore them back to fellowship. Now, what you need to know about this, and it's very important, you don't want to be the person who goes around confronting everybody all the time about every little thing where they've offended you. And uh, this, we're going to find, is going to be something significant, uh, not just every little thing where we are bothered by. So for instance, Paul would say it like this. He says, bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you have against one another forgive as the Lord forgave you. So here's what he's saying. Not everything is a big deal. People do stuff. They're going to offend you. They're going to hurt you, whatever. Most of that stuff, you just got to bear with them and let it go. Just let it go. The Lord's doing something in your life, just let it go. What we're talking about here, and as this unfolds, whatever is taking place that we're talking about here is something of such a nature, it's so great that if we don't deal with this, uh, that person will not be able to participate in church life. So this is something significant, not something trivial. Verse 16, he says, but if he does not listen to you, take one or two more witnesses with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, take one or two with you, mouth of two or three witnesses. And I have underlined two or three witnesses that every fact may be confirmed. And that's, a, that's from Deuteronomy chapter 19. Again, this is something that's so significant, we just can't overlook it, go on, get over it. So you have to take one or two more with you so that you have two or three witnesses who all saw what's going on. The goal is still restoration, but it's significant enough that we have to address it. So far so good? So, and again, the goal is restoration. Then verse 17, he says, but if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Now I want you to underline the word church here. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile. Some of your translations will say pagan. That's probably a better translation. And a tax collector. A tax collector. 
Um, the reason I wanted you to underline the word church is because this is the second time the word church appears in Matthew's gospel. Everything that we're talking about here today has to do with in-house church relationships. Something has happened. This is not out there in the working world. This is here within, within the church body. And so he says, if they will not listen, you take it to the church. If they won't listen to them, then you have to treat them as a pagan or a tax collector. So what's important here and write this down. This is where it becomes difficult or painful. Uh, We need to protect the church. And sometimes that means that someone has to be removed. And this is a decision that's never taken lightly, but in our church, I can tell you, and in every church that's ever existed, there have been some that the church leadership has had to say, you just can't be here anymore because of what you're doing. What you're doing is harming the body of Christ. It's harming the sheep. It's scandalizing the sheep and, and it's creating a real problem. Uh, so a couple of times or illustrations, certainly in this church and other churches also. A guy comes in and uh, starts making the rounds with the women and going way beyond what the Bible says which would be appropriate. And uh, you realize that, that he's not going to stop. We've talked to him, and uh, it's just not, not happening. So in those times, we've had to say, you know what? It's, it's time for you to go. You can't be here. We have to protect the flock. We have to protect God's people. Uh, somebody comes into the church, and they begin to work people for money. And uh, they've got kind of like the system, and they're getting money from this one and this one and this one, and it's kind of a game that they play. You talk to them, you're welcome to be here, fellowship, but this has to stop. It doesn't stop. At times we've had to step in and say, you cannot come here, you have to go because you've not repented. You're not stopping. Um, Here at Calvary, we have a unique theology, you might say. We have a unique methodology, and then we have a unique church culture. And we believe certain things that we believe because we believe that this is the direction that God has for us. We do things a certain way because we feel like this is how God would have us to operate. And so sometimes somebody will come into the church and they have a very different view as to how it should be. And they'll say, you know, I really like your church, but uh, we just think that you need to change this about your church. Just basically change who you are, what you do, and why you do it. And it'll be a great church. I will love coming to your church. We get that not everybody likes everything about our church. Uh, we, we know that, that, that not everybody digs the music. Not everybody likes this or that or whatever it might be. Uh, but, but we do things for a, a certain reason. And, 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 uh, but there have been times through the years where somebody comes in to the church and they go, I don't like this, and so I'm going to begin meeting with people, drawing a following, gathering people, and what they don't realize is that they are scandalizing uh, those who are growing in their faith and they try to change what we do. Now we get, you're, never, you're not going to like everything about every church and, and that's fine. But, but when people begin to meet and they begin to create groups uh, at that point to protect the body of Christ, at times we've had to say, you know, we've warned them, they, they don't, and then we let them go. We say, you need to go somewhere else. And uh, every church has had to do that at some point. So that happens. Um, so that makes sense, by the way? Yeah. And uh, so we uh, very spiritually um, say, you know, this was probably not the best church for you. You might want to try this type of church. They're more conducive to 
you know, what you're actually looking for, which is a polite way of saying, don't let the screen door hit you where the good Lord split you. <laughs> but when you're a pastor, you can't say that. <laughs> Should I not share that next service? <laughs> but sometimes you have to make the hard call. You've got to protect the church. And uh, Paul would say it like this here on your outline. He says, furthermore, if anyone does not obey what we are saying in this letter, take note of him and have nothing to do with him so that he will be ashamed. But don't consider him as an enemy. On the contrary, confront him as a brother and try to help him change. But they don't always want to change. And, uh, and so when you have to make that call... And any time we've ever had to make that call, we begin to second guess and we feel miserable. Oh, you know, this is a terrible thing. You know, I, I hate having to make these decisions. And of course, here you, you don't find that it's one person making the decision, but it's at least two or three as, as, uh, in, in, in the church leadership, however. But when they go, how do you treat them? Well, in verse 17, the very last line, he says, if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be a pagan or Gentile and a tax collector, tax collector, view them that way. So the question that we always have to ask ourselves when we have to make those painful decisions, and you want to write this down, how did Jesus treat pagans and tax collectors? He always treated them as people who needed to be one back to the congregation. So, but what's also important here to notice as we move on, in church life, the most that a church is allowed to do is to say, you can't fellowship here anymore and uh, until there's repentance. Tragically, if you've ever taken a course in church history, you'll see that in church history there have been those who represented, claimed to represent Jesus, who used torture and terrible things and the confiscation of property. That goes way beyond what the Bible says. The Bible says there comes a point where they can't worship here and all you can do is say, you can't be here. And that's, that's as far as the church can, can go. But there's been some gross uh, overstepping in church history. So here, uh, I, I want you to write this down. This is important for our story. This is an issue of protection, not forgiveness. So the issue is we've got to protect the church. It's always a difficult decision when you have to make that, 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 that decision and, and you always second guess that, especially you know, we love the Lord, we want to operate in grace. And so Jesus knows how difficult that decision is, and so he continues the conversation. It's the same paragraph, and Jesus says in verse 18, he says, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on the earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And there, the context here is you've just had to make this very, very painful decision. And so Jesus says, truly I say to you, you've had to ask this person to go, whatever you bind on the earth, which the word bind means also forbid, uh, and, and whatever you bind, whatever you forbid, uh, is also forbidden in heaven. The idea is Jesus is saying, in this very painful decision, heaven is standing with you in this. And so that's the first part. Then Jesus takes it a next step, and he says, Again, the context here is putting this person outside of the church. In verse 19 he says, again I say to you, if two of you agree on the earth, um, and you want to underline that word agree, on the earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. Here's why. 
For where two or three, and I want you to underline two or three, have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. When we read this, many times we jump to prayer. You know, we're praying about something, two or three of us gather, and uh, that's good. That's good. Um, but the context here is dealing with this person that's creating so much trouble in the church, we've had to ask them to go. And so here, when this happens, in verse 20, I had you underline for where two or three have gathered. And then if you go back to verse 16, we underline where it says two or three, two or three witnesses, so that every fact may be confirmed. The, the idea is that the two or three who are here agreeing are the same two or three who had to make this very, very painful decision. And in verse 19, he says, if any two of you agree on earth, that word agree in the original language is symphonio, uh, to where we get our English word, take a guess, symphony, symphony. It means to be harmonious. So here you are, you're in this difficult situation, you're praying, and uh, you're in harmony. This is a hard decision, but we all agree that it's the right thing. It's the right thing. Jesus would say in verse 20, he says, for where two or three, the same two or three in verse 16, two or three have gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst. And so you want to write down the reason we are in agreement in this is because Jesus is in our midst. The thing that we are asking in context here is, Lord, should we how do we handle this? Is it time for this person to go? Can we work it out? We've come to the place we say we can't work it out. The reason we're in agreement is because Jesus is the one in our midst. And uh, that's probably a difficult thing for our culture uh, to, to, to grasp, but that's what that's talking about. Now you can also use that as far as prayer, where two or three to gather together and you're praying about something. But here it's specifically dealing with what you and I would call church discipline. The conversation continues. And uh, same, same night, same house going on. So Peter, verse 21, came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother, my brother, sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said, uh, and by the way, Peter's being very generous. In that day, rabbis taught that you should forgive somebody three times. Maybe four, but after that, they've shown their colors. You're done. You're done. So when Peter says up to seven times, he thinks he's representing Jesus very well. Verse 22, Jesus said to him, I do not say up to you, I do not say to you up to seven times, but 70 times seven, up to 70 times seven, which is 490. Uh, the idea here is that there's no limit. There's no limit. You're not keeping score. It's, there, there's no way to keep score on that. You just keep forgiving that person. Verse 23, for this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, one who owed him, and you want to underline, 10,000 talents was brought to him. Now we read that and we kind of miss what he's saying. If you have a study Bible, somewhere in your margin, it's going to define what a talent is. Uh, in my study Bible, it defines a talent as the equivalent of 15 years of labor, 15 years income for labor. So this guy is 10,000 talents in debt. 
It's 150,000 years is the idea. So far so good? So it's this incomprehensible amount of debt that he has. 150,000 years of income he's, he's uh, in, in debt. Well, verse um, 25, it says, but since he did not have the means to pay, his Lord commanded them to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and for repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. I've always wondered what his plan was. You're 150,000 years in debt and what's the plan? A little more patience, I think I got this. And the Lord, my translation says, the Lord of that slave, and I want you to underline three words as, as Jesus is using some hyperbole here, and, but he's making a point. That the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves. Now here's what this means. They're both servants of the same master. Everything that we're talking about today deals with church relationships. We're all servants of the same master is the idea. Uh, But that went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, underline that, and seized him and began to choke him saying, pay back what you owe. There is debate on what denarii would equal. It could be a few thousand dollars, uh, but it's very common in commentaries to read that it could be as low as 15 to 20 dollars is the idea. So you've been forgiven 150,000 years and uh, here's somebody who's harmed you in some way, 15, 20 bucks, and you're choking the guy is the idea. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and threw him into the prison until he should pay back what he owed. And uh, the thing is, when you're in prison, you can't pay back what you owe. So when his fellow slaves, fellow servants, however your Bible says it, they're all part of the same family, they all have the same master. saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord what had happened. Then summoning him, the Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt, 150,000 years worth of income, because you pleaded with me. Should you not have also had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And the Lord was moved with anger and handed him over to the torturers until he should pay, repay all that was owed him. And the idea is he'll never be able to repay that. That my heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each one does not forgive his brother from his heart. So here, this is in-house family relationship. Jesus is using some hyperbole to make a point. I take forgiveness very seriously is the point that he's making. In this scenario, you want to write this down, this is an issue of forgiveness not protection. This is not about protecting the flock. In the few moments that we have, I wanted to take just a a couple of minutes and just talk about forgiveness. And um, let me begin by saying every one of us have been hurt. And there's a good chance it's by somebody who also claimed to be a follower of Jesus. We've been scandalized. We've been despised. And we've been hurt. And when I know that I could tell you stories that would make you cry 
about some of the things that I've been through. And you could tell me some stories about some of the things that you've been through that would make me cry. We've all been through some difficult times. We've all been hurt. And I've learned in my life that the reason that I want to forgive isn't always for the other person. The reason that I want to forgive is very selfish. It's, it's, it's for me. It's for me. Uh, let me share a verse with you, and maybe we can unpack it for a minute. There on your outline, Paul is writing to a church. and says, you know, if you forgive anyone, I forgive them. And what I, and what I forgive, and if there's anything to forgive, I've forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. Now, I want you to underline this. In order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Every one of us has heard that verse that says, we are not unaware of his schemes. Most of us don't realize that that verse is attached to forgiveness. Satan's great, if not greatest, scheme is to get followers of Jesus into the place of unforgiveness. So I want you to write this down. Satan's schemes, at least here, are related to unforgiveness. He knows that if we don't forgive, we stop growing. We stop growing emotionally. We stop growing spiritually. We come, become arrested in our spiritual walk with the Lord. We can't go forward. When we don't give forgiveness, we become bitter. And bitterness is one of those things that never stays at an even level. Bitterness grows. And if you've ever been around somebody who's bitter, you can always tell because whatever that hurt was way back when, when they have the opportunity, the venom begins to come out. And, and we know that we, we don't really like to be around bitter people. It, it's, it's not a lot of fun. But here's what happens. That's the Holy Spirit. I'll call him back. It's... <laughs> What I've learned in my life is that when I've been wounded and I have every right to attack or to hold a grudge or to be bitter because they've really hurt as they've done with all of us, the, the, the part that gets me is that the person who did the offending, they've just gone on with their lives and they're just living their life. And here I am carrying this huge weight and yet I can't go forward. And, and it be, turns into bitterness, and it begins to change everything about my life. As I was just sharing that, I, if a person, a situation popped into your mind, I believe that that popped into your mind because it's something that the Holy Spirit wants to say, this is something that we need to deal with. You've been carrying this, and we need to release this. And so in our story today, based upon this story, uh, I need to forgive because uh, uh, I need to, as I forgive, why well, I need to forgive, and I'll write this down, I need to remember that God's forgiven me. We've all done some things. And for me, I, I look at the things that God has had to forgive me of, and there have been some pretty bad things. Not as bad as the stuff he had to forgive you of, but just some bad things, okay? <laughs> but here's why they were worse for me. I grew up in the church. I knew better. 
Most people didn't, but I did. And God, with all the messes I made, looked at me as his little one, realizing the mess I was making, and chose to forgive. And because he's forgiven me, I now have to forgive everyone else. Everyone else. So forgiveness isn't for the other person, it's for me. What I've learned about forgiveness, and I want you to write this down because it's so true, is that forgiveness is a decision and it's a process. You see, I get hurt and I say, Lord, I'm going to forgive this person. I'm going to let you use this hurt in my life to take me where you want me to be. Work it in me. You know, I release this person. And then I get in my car and I'm driving home and in three minutes I'm fighting with that person in my head. Am I the only one? We've all done that. And it's when I do that I realize I have to come back and say, no, Lord, I forgive. I release. So it's a decision, but then it's a process. And I need to continue to give that over to the Lord until I'm released from that. And when you're released from that, it's a weight that's lifted. You can't go forward with unforgiveness. It's just bitterness. Again, as I mentioned a few moments ago, I think when I talked about that, certain people popped into our head. And I'm going to close in prayer, and as I do, I'm going to ask you, as you think about that situation, that person, whatever that was, to make that decision and realizing it's going to be a process, that you're going to let that go, let God do his work in your life as he sees fit, but we're going to forgive. So let's go ahead and and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we wrap this up today, you've forgiven us of so much. And Lord, sometimes we get so angry uh, not realizing the things that we've done and the things that you've overlooked in our life. And so today we look to you in that situation that you brought to our mind, that, that face, that person, and they hurt us, Lord. They hurt us really bad. And yet, Lord, uh, we are releasing them to you. We realize that in our releasing them in this, that's for us. It doesn't mean that they are free from if there's legal issues. It, certainly we don't have to bring them back into the inner circle of our lives. Trust has been violated. But Lord, we need to go on and so we forgive and we want to move on. And I pray God that as we take that step and we go forward, that we allow you and your power to work through us to give us that forgiveness so that we can be free and that that weight would be lost, it would be gone. Father, I pray, there's so much more to say on this, but Father, I pray that you keep each and every one of us until we meet again. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, and all God's people said, God bless you guys, we'll see you next time.